We're so glad you've joined us. Right now, it's Perry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. In honor of your anniversary, actually, I didn't know it was your anniversary when I thought about what I was going to chat about this morning, but your spouse is a gift from God. Yeah. Someone to love and respect. Our spouse is not supposed to meet our every need. God is. And I think because we share all of life with our spouse, you know, they're the one that we're talking about, like, how was your day? And you're talking those things through. And it's your spouse that you talk with to make decisions about your future. It's your spouse whose arms hold you when you need a hug. And so we might like subtly just begin to look to them to meet our needs, like our every need. And without even noticing it, we start putting on our spouse what we should be going to God for and maybe even putting our spouse before God and our identity gets wrapped up in our marriedness. Mm -hmm. I just made up that word. Do you like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a a splendid effort (laughs) in our marriedness. And that's a lot of pressure for your spouse to be expected to meet your every need. But if we're pursuing God first, if we're finding our identity in God first, then we can show up in our marriages, not needy, But having our needs already met by the one who created us and knows us better than we know ourselves. And then we're free to love, love our spouse and partner with them in life. Colossians 3, 12 through 17 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And I love this because it begins with therefore. You know what I mean? Like because of your identity in God, because God chose you, selected you, wants you, loves you, that's from that place you can go on to love. So long before your spouse chose you, you were chosen by God. And long before he took that big leap and told you that he loved you, you were dearly loved by God. Do you remember who said, I love you first in your relationship with Teresa? Was it you or her? Do you remember? I wrote a song called, I love you. Yeah. Swoon. (laughs) (laughs) And I sang it to her. That was creative. That's awesome. Yeah, we sang it at our wedding too. Oh, that's so cool. I'll have to pull that out. And did she say? I should have brought that. Thanks, dude. Or did she say I love you back right away? Uh, It was a little bit awkward because we were just kind of on-ramping into a more serious part of our relationship. And I don't know how I framed it. Yeah. I just, I said, I wrote this song and I know it's kind of, kind of intimate, you know, but I just want to share it with you. Oh. Yeah. I'm not sure what went through her head. That's awesome. I think she was in tears. I think she was sobbing. <laughs> I think she was just, just floored. Right. So taken with your hunkiness and musical ability and all the things. Yeah. Well, since God chose us first and God loved us first, we must love him first before our spouse. To say this another way, we need to love God first if we want to properly love our spouse. And the same is true for loving our kids or anybody else for that matter. This is very different from what culture tells us. But putting our spouse in the position higher than God isn't a loving thing to do. It's actually putting them in a position that they could never fulfill. It's setting them up for failure. And they'll let you down and they'll disappoint you from this position. And they could never fulfill the needs 
that need to be met as the number one priority in your life. Only God can do that. So you find yourself frustrated and angry and disappointed with your spouse and in your spouse if you make your spouse responsible for your greatest source of fulfillment and devotion. And here's something that's just really come home to me this year, and it's that if I if I find my identity in Teresa, if I do things for her because I want some kind of response from her that makes yeah. me feel good, right. then that's your selfishness. It's not love. And that's real convicting because I don't love anyone 100%. You know, there, there is, there's a selfishness in me. Right. And the Lord is doing his lifelong work of, of getting that out of me. And it does come from being loved by him because then I can, I can love my spouse. I can love Teresa. I can love people, not for what I get selfishly from them because, but because I really do. It's real love. Love is unselfish. Right. And that's what I'm aiming for. That's what I'm reaching for. And it comes from just soaking in the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. I mean, if that's not first, we don't have the capacity to really love our spouse or our kids or anybody else the way that we're intended to, to freely love them, fearlessly love them. Yeah, it's not really love right? if we're not drawing from the lover of our souls. Yeah, so we we need to love God or we can love God and put him first as our highest priority. And, and the other things will come together. When I was, shoot, I can't remember exactly when this came, but I had this vision um, in my mind's eye, okay, a picture that I just saw while I was wide awake in my mind's eye of Jesus in front of me with his hands extended towards me and like inviting me to come to him. And I was walking towards him and there were these important things that were um, on in my peripheral vision, like vying for my attention. Like they started off not being that important, like the telephone and the computer and that sort of thing. But as I got closer and closer to Jesus, the things got more and more valuable. And the last thing before I reached Jesus off to my right here was my husband and my kids. And my littlest one started to kind of toddle towards me. And, you know, I was so tempted to pull my attention, pull my gaze off of Jesus and look to my family And my husband kind of gently grabbed her and pulled her back, you know, towards himself and was smiling as if to say, like, you know, let mama go, let her, you know, keep her eyes fixed on Jesus. And I really felt like the the message, what God wanted me to know out of that at the time was, if you keep your eyes fixed on me, all of the other things are going to fall into place. All the things, you know, that vie for your attention is even your husband Mm -hmm. and even your kids, even your family. So put God first. Love God most, and all these things will be added to you. I don't know if you've ever had this thought cross your mind, or maybe you've wrestled with this thought. Maybe all this stuff that I believe isn't true. For me, at the very least, the thought has crossed my mind and I've had some doubts and I know people who have wrestled with doubts. And so if you're there, it's, it's okay to have doubts. They help our faith to grow. As a follower of Jesus, I find great assurance in God's word that what I believe is true. There's power in it. It rings true. Mm-hmm. And the Bible claims to be God's word. So there is that. 
And again, I've experienced the power of God's Word. But I believe we need more than just our experience with God's Word when those doubts come. We need to know that what the Bible is telling us really is history. And as Paul said, you know, he said it himself, if Christ didn't rise from the dead in history, then our faith is meaningless. It's a myth. We already be pitied more than all people. And I, I love that chutzpah. Right. You know? Right. I mean, if if Jesus didn't, if he was a good man mm-hmm. and he died and he remained dead, mm-hmm. then where is our faith? Yeah. Our faith is in the fact that God that raised him from the dead and he's still alive today. Right now he's at the right hand of the Father praying on our behalf. And if that's not true, then we shouldn't be in this thing. Right. So my and your experience is important, but we also need to know that our faith is rooted in history and evidence. And if I need that, how much more the people who don't follow Jesus? And as our culture, you know, slips into more, you know, postmodernism, we have skeptics, we have cynics, atheists, agnostics, people, hopefully you're rubbing shoulders with these people and building relationships with them. And so saying to your agnostic coworker or neighbor, you should believe in Jesus because the Bible says so, doesn't cut it. The Bible's just another book to them. So we need a way forward. And we have some beautiful ways forward. So we bring in Andy Bannister. Andy is a Brit who speaks and teaches throughout the UK, Europe, Canada, the US, really across the world. He's just a brilliant guy. He has a PhD in Islamic studies, and he's written several books, including The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. So, Andy, how do we engage in a winsome way with people who don't believe in the Bible? What is the way forward? A couple of things. Firstly, sometimes... Be willing as a Christian to take the back foot. Don't feel you've got to necessarily leap straight in with, hey, you should believe the Bible. Because for somebody who doesn't even believe in God, for example, that's a huge commitment. So find other ways to talk about God, other ways to talk about your Christian faith that intrigue people, and then find the time to move into Scripture. Quote Scripture without saying it's Scripture. Because sometimes people get suspicious the moment you put the Bible verse on. But for example... You know, I sometimes like to talk with atheist friends about the kind of sort of deep longings that every human being seems to have for, for meaning and purpose. And I sometimes like to say things like, you know, you know, as one ancient writer said, you know, uh, eternity has been set within the hearts of men. Now, that's a quote out of the Old Testament. I put the Bible verse on the end of there. People go, oh, scripture. I don't believe scripture. You say an ancient writer said, and people go, oh, that's really interesting, without realizing it's scripture. The power of scripture doesn't lie in putting the, the chapter and verse reference on the end of it. Scripture is active and powerful because of the word of God. Second thing I'd say, find those parts of the Bible that, where you really want to push people to take seriously before you go to some of the other parts. What I mean by that is the Gospels is the place to start. So I always like to say to skeptical friends, look, there is phenomenally good historical reasons to take the Gospels seriously. So, you know, what I want to do is encourage my atheist friends to perhaps read the Gospel of Mark with an open mind. I'm slightly less concerned, at least at first, about getting them to accept the historicity of Noah's flood or something. I mean, it's a useful discussion. That has to come, but it's not my starting point. I want to start with Jesus, because the most powerful argument for the rest of for Scripture being true is Jesus considered it to be true. And I think the people who rose from the dead have remarkably high credibility. So be willing to hold lightly to some things. 
don't feel you have to argue every point. Make sure you're consistently pulling them back to Jesus and, you know, sowing into your conversations the reasons why we should take the gospel seriously. And I give some good reasons why in the last chapter of my book. As Dr. Andy Bannister and his book is, and I want to get it, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. And Andy has just pointed out something so powerful that if Jesus rose from the dead, uh, we can trust everything that he has said. And there's, there's really great historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. 99% of New Testament scholars, and I don't know if you know this, but a lot of New Testament scholars are atheists. Mm. They just love to study. They just love to study, and mm, some of them want to pick apart the New Testament. But 99% of scholars, whether they believe in the New Testament or not, accept four facts about the resurrection, surrounding the claim of the resurrection. The first is that Jesus really did die. They all agree that. The second is that they agree that the tomb was found to be empty. And so those two things are accepted. The third is that um, people claim to have seen Jesus alive after he died and that those first followers' lives were transformed by the experience of claiming to have seen Jesus. So you can put that in an acronym, F-E-A-T, F is fatal torment, he died, E is the empty tomb, A is appearances, T is transformed lives. And so, you know, you can say at the very least, these people believe that he was alive. What accounts for that? What accounts for all those facts? To me, personally, I've come to the conclusion, of course, that the resurrection really did happen. But I just, I think it just firmly plants the, at least the claim of the resurrection um, solidly in history. Absolutely. And I think, too, like in the conversations that we have with other people, I don't know, I think that we're... Um, we can be easily offended. Mm-hmm. And so to enter into a conversation, knowing what we believe, sure of what we believe and inquisitive to learn what they believe. Yes. How quickly would you change your belief system? Probably right. not very quickly. Right. So with love and respect, engage in the conversations, curious as yeah. to how they got where they are right now. Yeah, when somebody makes a truth claim to us that we would say, well, so how did you come to that conclusion? You know, I'm interested to know rather than just, you know, trying to win an argument, you know, jumping in. I think my approach would be, you know, here's uh, my approach would be I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a, a brilliant, you know, scholar from Oxford but, you know, I, I do think about things and I've thought through these things. And here's, you know, I just want to offer to you the, the historical reasons I believe in Jesus. So it can, kind of that approach. But sure. be, even before that, I love what you're saying, you know, just to be inquisitive. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to get into a debate. So let's uh, rub shoulders with people who, who just don't believe the Bible because, you know what, we know something beautiful. That's true. We have it to share, and we can build that bridge. So 
So I know a thing or two about anxiety, if you deal with anxiety, and it's just, the thing is so annoying. Mm -hmm. Just this morning, I'm driving to work, and I just felt anxious about everything, and so I started praying, and even as I was praying, it was anxiety prayers. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Like there's, you know, God, be with such and such, and help, blah, 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 and then there's like that where you're pleading, and you're begging, and you're anxious, and you're praying, you know, oh, please be with so-and-so, please help, da-da-da, and... Yeah, I just felt myself really in that place. And I was like, I needed to pause from the people I was praying for to ask God to just be my peace and settle my heart. But I have a really good friend who struggles with anxiety. And it kills me because her feelings tell her that she's small and that she's fragile and that she's going to fail. And that is so not what I see when I look at her and I know her really well (laughs) and I see a confident, capable woman whose voice brings value, whose presence literally changes the atmosphere. And she is not at all who she thinks she is. If only she could see what I see. And it's easy for me to see so clearly who she is, but it's a little harder to see myself as clearly. And identity is such a big part of how we interact with the world around us how we engage our relationship with God. Like I mentioned, you know, the way that I was praying for him this morning, how we impact other people in our relationships. And one of the richest passages about identity in the Bible is found in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And in this one passage, Paul is addressing the church in Ephesus and explaining the new identity given to a person when they're in Christ. And according to Ephesians 1, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been chosen adopted, redeemed, forgiven, grace lavished, and unconditionally loved and accepted. We're pure, blameless, and forgiven. We've received the hope of spending eternity with God. When we are in Christ, these aspects of our identity can never be altered by what we do. It's unchangeable. And we have to, I have to keep coming back to this every single day. And so right now, Thank you, Shauna. I'm coming back to these beautiful truths that cannot be changed by my feelings, by my actions, by anything in me, because it says also in another place that there's nothing in all creation that can separate me from the love of God. Yeah. And these truths are true the minute that we give our heart to Jesus. They are absolutely true about us and exist in their entirety, but they're revealed to us in relationship with God through his word. So just to encourage you to create a simple pattern of spending time with God, set aside time, make time because life is busy and there are always going to be things pressing into your schedule. So carve out time for being with the Lord, reading the Bible and little by little, these truths about who we are are going to make their way into our beliefs about who we are. What really blows me away is that I know that when I was 10 years old, I gave my heart over and my life over to Jesus and I knew that I belonged to him. And, and yet I would really, really struggle in my walk with Jesus during a teenage years. And I had no idea who I was in Christ all those years. And yet all these things were true of me back then when I had no idea they were true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had to come into the the realization of these things. And, you know, I failed so often as a teenager. And once I started to realize 
these things about me. You know, as I went into college and then moved on from college and as right up to the present time, as I've learned more and more of who I am in Christ, it has changed the way that I live. Mm -hmm. It has changed my behavior. It's changed my struggle against sin. You know, I don't, I don't lose like I used to. Right. I'm not sinless, but I don't lose like I used to because I know who I am. Yeah. Loved. So good. Yeah, it really does change everything. And the truth that we find in scripture replaces the lies that we've started to believe about ourselves. And then we come to know more and more just how very loved we are, how safe and significant we truly are. If someone today asks you about your hope as a believer in Jesus, always be ready to explain it and do it in a gentle and respectful way. At 1 Peter 3.15, New Living Translation, the ESV says, same passage, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I love this. I love the idea that someone may come along today and ask me about the hope that is in me, And that I would have an opportunity to share that. And I hope that somebody does ask you today. Just yesterday, uh, an acquaintance of mine posted on social media, I think I'm homesick for something that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, I want someone who, um, who knows me and loves me. I'm paraphrasing this, but this is basically what it said. You know, somebody who knows me and loves me and, and gets my soul. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) So I just responded and say, oh my goodness, I get it. I've been there. It does exist. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to tell you about it. You know, if you, if you want to hear about it, you know, reach out to me. Like I said, she's not a good friend. She's an acquaintance, but I thought, what an opportunity. That is the human longing. That is the longing of human existence. Longing for pure love. Yeah, that's it. Yep. We all do. We all do. Yep, we do. And it's only found in Jesus. We were created for that. Well, as an ancient writer once said, yes, God has tell. put eternity in our hearts. He has. Yeah. And we do. The homesick part of it, of that quote is what really, really got me because it's yeah. like, you are homesick for heaven. You're homesick for where you, you know, where you belong, what yeah. you were created for. Yes. And I was at Carpe Latte several weeks ago now with my dad. And, and as I was leaving, there was a guy who was sitting there the whole time. He's on his computer. And as I was leaving, he goes, who are you? And I stopped and I said, well, I don't remember how I responded to that. He said, but I, I see you in here. I see you with different people. Oh, I see you ministering to people, you know, and, and I see people ministering to you. And I, I know you're a person of faith. You have to be a person of faith. And I, I have a faith, but it feels like I'm losing my faith. And I have a lot of doubts. Mm. And I'm just really questioning whether I can trust the New Testament. And, and I actually had a little conversation about, you know, how there's really good scholarship now that says the Gospels were written quite early, you know, within a generation of the people who, um, 
well, within a generation of the events. Right. And so there are people who could be questioned and, and, and things like that. But at any rate, you know, he, he said to me, I think you're somebody that maybe I could talk with about this. And so I, I gave him my email address. I haven't heard from him. You got a hunch that I will. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's just the kind of, I haven't had that happen very much. But I never remember seeing the guy in there. Never. Huh. And, and he's been in there many times watching me. While you were there. And the way that I operate. Yeah. Isn't that something? That's so beautiful that you didn't know he was there and you didn't know he was watching. But, you know, I do think, here's what I think. This is my personal take on this. I think he was attracted to you, Perry, and he wanted to draw not near you because of Jesus in you. Mm-hmm. And people are attracted to Christ followers. I saw this in Cancun. We made friends with a couple, mm-hmm. a young couple that was on yeah, their honeymoon. Yeah. And they were just, um, it's just this, I mean, they were beautiful. They were attractive people. But I noticed every time they came out to the pool, that people kind of circled around them. And they were Christ followers. We had great conversations with them. They were devoted to Jesus and seeking after him. And and I had the opportunity to just share that with them before they left. Like people are attracted to you and that's Jesus in you. And that's going to create opportunities for you to have conversations, meaningful conversations about eternity, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I do. I think when people, especially when somebody just approaches you or just comes up to you or befriends you, it's the Jesus in you that they long to know. Yeah. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Thanks for listening to Perry and Shauna Replay. To learn more, text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930.